Well, again, it's good, uh, good to be together. We're, uh, if you happen to be new uh, to, to Fifth, either in person today or possibly joining us online, we're in the midst of a sermon series taking us through the book of James, uh, this, this letter that, that James wrote, and we're on our uh, third week in that series, just chipping our way through the entire book. And it's a series that's titled Faith That Works, um, very much based on the claim of Easter. You know, that, that claim of Easter, of course, is that Jesus is alive from the dead right now, that, that we live in a world where a resurrection has happened, not just metaphorically or spiritually, but physically, bodily. Jesus was dead and was raised again and is alive right now in his body. That's what Christians believe. And the book of James is a very practical book. It focuses on the outworking of the Christian life, if you really believe the claim of Easter. It answers the question, uh, you know, if you believe in the resurrection, what could, should your daily life look like? And the series title, Faith That Works, as we've noted the last couple weeks, has a double meaning. It's faith, of course, that works for the one who believes. It changes our lives in very real ways tangible ways, uh, I think often of the friends I have in this congregation and the reality that I would not know you but for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. My life has a very tangible, real blessing because of what Christ has done for us. So real faith is faith that works for us who believe, but it's also faith that works for others because when we come to believe that we live in a world where our resurrection has happened, we understand that that's not just our religious belief. That is the most important fact of history for everyone everywhere, no matter what they believe. So our faith should naturally be outward facing. It should work on behalf of and for other people. It should work for the world, so faith that works. And of course, if, you, if you've been around the Christian faith for a little bit longer and are a, a bit more familiar with the Bible, you know that that's the direction the book of James leans. It's the outworking of our faith in the world. Uh, and, and one quick thing before we dive in, you might have noticed that the last three weeks in a row we've used the same words of assurance. Remember those, we read those from Ephesians 2. We're going to be using those same words of assurance throughout this entire series to counter this idea that there's some discrepancy between what James is saying and and what, say, the the Apostle Paul writes. You know, the Apostle Paul, in his writings, explains what the gospel is and how it works in us. James assumes the gospel, assumes faith in Jesus, and helps us understand what a Jesus-shaped life looks like. The two do not contradict one another. They're hand in glove, right? They go perfectly together. Thus, this passage, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, though we're not saved by them, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Hand and glove, right? These things fit together. And the passage for today, then, uh, from chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, in essence, James says, if you really believe the gospel, you'll be committed to justice and mercy for the reason that you understand who Jesus really is. So with that in mind, let's listen to the scripture. 
As Pastor John has said, our scripture reading for today comes from James, the second chapter, verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there and sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich you who is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Ted. Mercy triumphs over judgment, and we are so grateful for that, aren't we? <laughs> so, so again, James, uh, James is saying, if, if you really believe the gospel, you'll be committed to justice and mercy for the reason that you understand who Jesus really is. So if you believe the gospel, you'll have these two life commitments of justice and mercy, and the reason you'll have those commitments will be based on Jesus, not just because you think you should or because it's a good idea. So that's really the outline for today, two life commitments, justice and mercy and the reason why. Uh, and then I have a story of application that I'd like to share that I, I hope will be helpful to us. So first, if you really believe the gospel, you'll be committed to justice. I mean, we see this in the first four verses of the passage uh, read for us. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes 
old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The first thing to say about this is that uh, uh, Greek scholars, people who really look at language and such, say that this could be interpreted not just as a theoretical uh, uh, possibility that James is proposing, like a, a theoretical scenario. It reads more like something he witnessed, something he experienced. Now, now remember, the author of the book is James. James was Jesus' little brother, so he, he grew up with Jesus. He played with him, knew, knew all the stuff. He had all the dirt on Jesus, right? Um, and he didn't believe in Jesus at first. Remember, the Bible tells us that. But after Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, Jesus appeared to James, and that became the turning point in James' life. He later became known as James the Just, and the historian Eusebius tells us why. James used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God kneeling and asking forgiveness for the people. So from his excessive righteousness, he became known as, or he was called, the just. I know I shared that quote a couple weeks ago, but I, I want you to have it top of mind because as we, as we look at what James wrote, we need to have his mental model in, in our heads. When, when James saw Jesus alive from the dead in his body, you know, physical dead guy alive again in front of James with whom he could speak, whom he could touch, when James had that experience, his life was changed forever. I mean, this, there, there was no going back. This was a definitive worldview-altering experience from which there was no return. He, he had to have faith, too, like we do, but not in the same sense. I mean, he saw Jesus alive from the dead. He didn't come to believe in the resurrection by faith. He had seen, and that certainty drove him to a life committed to prayer. So in James, you've got a guy who is an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus and whose response to that experience was a wholesale commitment to prayer for the rest of his life. He understood that that was the, the greatest investment he could make, the most powerful thing he could do. So in that spirit, I invite you again to pray for the church in the month of May, right? So, so that's James. That's where his head is at. That's what he's experienced. That's the kind of guy he is. So he shows up at church one day, and he watches this whole situation go down in the lobby. The one described in our, in our verses here. Christians fawning over the rich guy, giving him the seat of honor while telling the poor guy in shabby clothes to, to sit on the floor. You know, could you just kind of stay out of the way? We got, we got a guy over here. And James was livid. Absolutely livid because he knew that that behavior, that that, that treatment of that, that poorer man in shabby clothes was inconsistent with authentic faith in Jesus. 
you know, showing favoritism to a wealthy person or to anyone else for any reason is an injustice. And we know that not just because I'm saying it, it it's right in the passage. Look further down. Uh, uh, James asks this question. If you do that, show favoritism for the wealthy over the poor, have you not discriminated among yourselves? James says that showing favoritism is the exercise of discrimination. The, the de- dictionary describes uh, discrimination in this way, the unjust or prejudicial treatment of different categories of people, especially on the grounds of race, age, or sex. But it's not just race, age, or sex. You know, James is pointing to economics, that, that we sometimes favor the wealthy over the poor for whatever reason, the, the motivations could be many. Uh, we, we often favor the educated over the less educated. Oh, master's degree? Welcome to the church board. And when from a spiritual perspective, that, that doesn't matter. Right? We're looking for spiritual maturity. But, I mean, you get it. Social connectedness, there's all sorts of other categories that we dream up in our heads and we, we put people in this category and this and that and you know that. You know what's in you, I know what's in me. Uh, James poses the next question. Look at this. When you do that, have you not become judges with evil thoughts? And the reference here is not just to a judgmental person, a, you know, somebody who jumps to conclusion uh, uh, toward another person based on maybe how they look or, or how, how they speak or, or whatever. The, the reference is actually quite clear. The reference is to an actual judge, a person who holds that, that position of authority who's gone bad It's a crooked judge who accepts bribes to throw cases uh, toward the highest bidder. James is saying, when you discriminate among people, when you show favoritism for the wealthy over the poor, it's an injustice. And by the way, it's just as bad as that crooked judge who's throwing cases for money. This isn't just sort of bad, it's really bad. It's inconsistent with faith in Jesus. See, when we discriminate among people based on human categories, that is an injustice. Not only does showing favoritism violate the image of God in every person, this is what we believe as Christians, it runs contrary to what God's trying to accomplish in the world, the great renewal project in the world. Look at this from from Ephesians uh, 2. Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Remember the two groups of of which Paul is speaking in this letter are the, the Jews and the Gentiles. So Jewish people and everybody else. So when you add those two together, you get everyone everywhere in the whole world. So you can read this and see Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of everybody everywhere. It's why we have the Great Commission to this day, the the mandate Jesus left to us. Go and make disciples of all nations. Pantos ethnos is the Greek. All nations. Make disciples of everyone everywhere. Not just a believer here or there in every country. The call is to, to share this grace, share this love, and teach people what it means to follow Jesus actively with their lives. And, and the, the target, the goal, is to connect with every single person everywhere on this earth. You're one new humanity 
God is creating for himself. If we discriminate among people, knowingly or unknowingly, we're working against that purpose that Jesus has in this world. His, his purpose to help us find our way back to God and to create one new humanity under the banner of God's love and, and the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, God, God's family. So if you really believe the gospel, you'll be committed to justice. And second, if you really believe the gospel, you'll be committed to mercy. We see this toward the end of the passage. Speak and act. Don't miss how clear that imperative statement is. Speak and act. Conduct yourself in all the fullness of you. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to those who, uh, to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I mean, that, that, that's pretty strong, isn't it? Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. What, what's going on here? I mean, if you're, if you're more familiar with the Bible, uh, call to mind that story that Jesus told, a parable. Often in our Bibles these days, it's titled The Unmerciful Servant. Do you remember this one? I'm just gonna give a quick paraphrase. There, there's a servant who owes his master hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, multiple lifetimes worth of salary. There's no way this guy could ever repay it. And the master's gonna have him locked up. But the, the servant pleads for mercy and the master grants it, lets him off the hook. And this servant who was granted mercy by the master goes out and, well, there's, there's another guy who owes him money, just a few dollars. And he insists that that guy be locked up until he pay back every cent. The, the unmerciful servant, right? Um, commentator Kent Hughes makes the point better than I could. Jesus' parable reveals the spiritual psychology of the soul. An unmerciful spirit reveals a heart that has not received mercy. But the heart that has been the object of divine mercy will be merciful. You know, if, if we've really received the mercy of God to us in Jesus, it changes us and makes us merciful. Right? In the passage, mercy isn't a standalone idea. It's directly linked to the justice piece that, that came up earlier in the passage. Remember the example, rich man and poor man go to church and favor was given to the rich man. The poor man was dismissed with no acknowledgement of his physical need. I'm jumping ahead to next week's passage a little bit, but it applies here. Verses 15 and 16 in James 2. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? So the double injustice of this story that James told is that the rich guy comes into the service, he gets all the favor, and the poor guy said, hey, why don't, why don't you just you know, go over there, why don't you sit, sit over there? So not only was the, the poor guy dismissed, there was absolutely no recognition of a physical material need. The, the opportunity to extend mercy was missed entirely because of the favoritism. So that, that favoritism is an injustice that reveals an unmerciful spirit, right? Like we missed it. That's what James is saying. So if you really, if you really believe the gospel, you'll be committed to mercy. 
Now, these, these ideas are not new. You know, James did not just pull these things out of a hat or something. I mean, this is a long-standing call upon God's people, really since the initial call to Abram. Remember God's call to Abram? He said, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing, right, to other people. You'll be engaged in their lives and, and you'll, you'll bless them. More specifically stated in the prophets, Micah puts it this way. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And, and in Jesus, all this just became clearer. And, and that's the why behind our commitments to justice and mercy. So the two commitments, justice, mercy, and the why. Look, look at verse one again. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Uh, literally, believers in Jesus, the Lord of glory, is the way it reads. Now, in, in the Bible, the word glory is an amazing word. It, you know, we, we often think of it as uh, like the high school sports star in, in his glory or, you know, things like that. We, we water this thing way, way down. The biblical word is massive. The biblical word glory refers to the things that are substantial because they're the most real the best truth around, the most important things, those things that should be supremely important in our lives. Uh, the, the word led C.S. Lewis to write his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. The, the weight of glory, it's heavy and massive because it's an anchor of importance and truth. And Jesus is the Lord of glory. The Lord of that which is true and supremely important. So Jesus, as the Lord of glory, is the king of that which is supremely important. So James is saying, if you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, if you believe the gospel, if you believe the resurrection, then all favoritism is pure folly. It makes no sense. It, it amounts to an abandoning of what you actually believe. And more than that, James is saying that if we show favoritism by not treating other human beings as equals, because of some human category system we have running in our heads, if we do that, then we are violating the glory of God because a human being is the pinnacle of God's creation and we bear God's image. Right, we're showing that, when, when we do that, we're showing that Jesus really isn't on the throne of our hearts in that little area of life where we're behaving that way. I mean, we might speak, speak well of Jesus to others. We might believe all the right things about Jesus. We might think our lives revolve around Jesus, but when we show favoritism, our behavior of treating other human beings as superior or giving some preferential treatment over others based on some human category, when we do that, it proves that Jesus isn't leading us right there in that moment, in that conversation, in that interaction. So that, that's, the, that's the message for today. Two, two commitments will be committed to justice and to mercy for the reason that we understand who Jesus is. He's the Lord of glory, the Lord of the supremely important. And now, now an application I, I hope helps us. Our pastoral elder team has been 
reading a book together called The Myth of Equality. It was recommended to me by a mentor of mine who said that this would be a good first book to read in the area of racial equity and justice. So our, our pastor elders picked it up. It's, again, it's The Myth of Equality by Ken Witzma. I recommend it to you. It's, it's really a great book. We've been reading a chapter a month. The, the pastoral elders meet once a month. And then one of the elder team leads the conversation about that chapter each month. A couple Thursdays back, we were on chapter nine, titled, When Racism Went Underground, Implicit Racial Bias and the Stories That Hide Within Us. Now, the elder leading the conversation began with a very interesting statement. And, and to the other pastoral elders in the room, and everybody really, I asked permission to share this story, and this elder granted that permission. So this, this is not a blind side. Uh, at, at the beginning of the year, this elder was pretty open in saying that he wouldn't have picked this book. It wasn't his first choice, didn't, didn't really want to read it, but he would because the team was doing it. A couple Thursday nights ago, he led with this line. Well, I've come 180 degrees on this book. And he went on to explain with a level of vulnerability I deeply respect that he had never heard of implicit racial bias nor understood it in its fullness until reading that chapter. That was a new idea to him. And then he asked some very probing questions of our pastoral elder team. He, he asked, hey, how many of you knew about this? You know, like before we read this book, book and, and this chapter, how, how many of you knew about this? And it, it turns out that along with him, there were a number of elders for whom this was a new idea. And he went on to explain that after reading the chapter, he started talking to everybody. And he started talking to his son who has training in the medical field. And he said, hey, did, did you know about this? Is this, is this a thing? And the son said, oh, dad, yeah, this is, this is a big thing. Like, we get training on this because, you know, doctors, as they interact with patients, you have to be aware if you have some kind of implicit bias of which you're unaware that might influence the way that you interact with a patient because we have this high standard of engaging equally with our, our patients. And wow. And, you know, his son was right. It, it is a big deal. Uh, and it is a proven thing. This is not just a matter of opinion. There are boatloads of studies out there, scholarly studies from universities. One, one uh, that has stuck in my mind and has been most helpful to me was a study that, that showed people pictures of human faces, not, not showing the eyes, but just kind of from the bridge of the nose here, this area, not even the chin, but just down to the lips, that rectangle of your face. Brought people in and put up, three pictures or, or a number of pictures of just that part of a human face. And, and uh, people were asked these kinds of questions. Uh, which person is most trustworthy? Again, just based on looking at the face, right? Or which person is most intimidating? Fascinating. Just fascinating. People from a variety of different cultural, ethnic, and racial backgrounds consistently picked the face of the northern European woman as the most trustworthy. And again, and again, people from all sorts of cultural backgrounds, culture, 
ethnicity and, and, and race, also consistently picked the face of the African man as the most intimidating. Huh. That's a thing. Implicit bias of which we might not be aware. There, there was a, a great book released several years ago, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. I don't know if anyone picked that up and was able to read it. It dealt with this kind of thing, the way that we internally, through just very initial perceptions, make decisions about things to keep our life moving forward. And, and how untrustworthy those instant decisions really are. And we need to kind of revisit that and, and, and look at this again. I think this is a massively important conversation. I so appreciated our elder bringing this up at the meeting because I've had conversations, even, even with a couple from this church who has chosen no longer to be part of this church for this very reason. Because in, in the conversation about race, all they could hear was an explicit accusation. Racism equals explicit racial bias actions toward people that are different than us. So we talked for quite some time. And, 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 and these folks said, well, we, we don't do that. We're not, we're not racists. Like, I know, no, I know. We're not talking about that. There's a whole other category of conversation here. It's, it's the stuff we can't see that's the heart of the conversation in our country these days. And it's an incredibly important conversation. And the reason it's super important to talk about it as Christians is because of what James says, because of the scripture we just looked at today. This implicit racial bias is that, showing favoritism, giving preferential treatment to some based on human categories rather than on our faith in Jesus that says every human being has been made equally before God and, and bears God's image. This is that. Implicit racial bias, that's what... James is talking about. And we would do well to root out favoritism, to, to do the heavy lifting, the harder work, the deeper work of examining our own hearts and, and trying to sort out whether we might be showing favoritism in ways of which we're even unaware. And this is a way we can practice everyday justice. That's the title of the sermon, right? the rooting out of favoritism in our hearts. And, and Christians should not resist this. Christians should be leading the way in this because we know that believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. So in our passage today, James is saying, if you really believe the gospel, you'll be committed to justice you'll be committed to mercy because you understand who Jesus really is, the Lord of glory. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness uh, to us. Thank you for your patience with me I thank you that your patience helps us understand uh, your desire for everyone everywhere to come to know you. God, pour out your spirit on us in powerful ways. Change us 
make us more like Jesus, where, where our hearts are reluctant, God. Bring your reassurance and your challenge to us, please. Uh, show us the way forward. God, reveal to us any a kind of implicit bias we might have. Open our eyes to our blind spots. Help us to welcome others in uh, that we might gain perspective on our blind spots. Uh, and all, Lord, for the purpose of becoming more like you. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, and we pray in your name. Amen.